0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled Ukraine Resets the Dial. It is the 10th of March. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and Alex Byrne. Given the profound change in world order we've seen with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we thought it would be a good opportunity to ask for your questions to our investment team. And I will include some of these questions as we go through our discussion today. Financial markets have certainly been rocked by the onset of what is both a conventional and an economic war in Europe, we've seen sharply rising commodity prices, pushing inflation forecasts higher, and at the same time, growth forecasts are being cut. Central banks are now treading an increasingly narrow line, already attempting to rein in these higher prices, while also now trying to preserve the post-COVID recovery. Will these events change the monetary policy agenda for 2022? And how might financial markets respond? Seamus, could I ask you to frame our discussion by giving us the scale of market reactions over the last few weeks.
1: Hi Lorna. Yes, sure. So it's certainly been an interesting few weeks for markets and they have been very volatile. But they have also been behaving as you'd expect when such a risk-off event occurs. So risky assets have been selling down and safe haven assets have been holding up pretty well. So with Russia being a key player in the energy and commodity markets, these have been at the center of everything. So we've seen large upward moves in oil and gas prices. The oil price briefly touched $139 a barrel just a few days ago. That's the highest price we've seen in over a decade. And gas and commodity prices have also seen phenomenal rises. So this in turn has weighed on equity markets and we've seen some large falls there. So Eurozone equities, they've fallen considerably more than most, which is not surprising given the proximity to the conflict and also their reliance on energy from Russia. But most other equity markets have also experienced falls as well. And then on the bond side, you've seen the riskier bond markets, they have fallen too. So emerging market debt, this has Russia as a key issuer in that market market. This has seen some substantial falls as well. But we've also seen high yield corporate bond markets. They have seen their credit spreads widen, which has resulted in their prices falling as well. But then on the safe haven side, we've seen some of the developed bond markets. They've done quite well. So US Treasuries, German bonds, they've all held up very well. Gold has enjoyed some good performance as well recently. The US dollar and other safe haven currencies such as the Japanese yen, they've done quite well. So yeah, certainly it's been an interesting couple of weeks for global markets.
0: Yes, thank you for that. The standout price rise. As you mentioned, it has been oil. We've had questions regarding our expectation of whether the oil price could rise further from the current level of just under $115, potentially even touching $200 a barrel.
1: Yes, this is the question that markets have been grappling over since the beginning of the conflict. Much will probably depend on the path of the conflict from here. If the conflict ends up going on for longer or being more drawn out, this will lead to continued uncertainty and a little weigh on markets. But probably more important is the level of sanctions that are targeting the Russian supply of oil and gas because this really has the potential to tighten supplies to the market, which in turn will obviously drive up the prices as well. So the US and the UK, they've already announced bans on Russian imports of oil and gas. Europe and other nations, they've moved a little bit on this, but they could yet move further. So as well, this might lead to a retaliatory Response from Russia, and that could provoke the situation even further. So there is potential for oil prices to rise even further from here. Whether they reach two hundred dollars or somewhere near it, it's not outside the realms of possibility. But if they were to move toward that figure, it would most likely lead to recessions in most of the major global economies, given the importance of oil to these economies. and And governments obviously don't want this to happen either. So you'd expect some other responses from them to ease the supply concerns if this was occurring. Things we've seen recently, the U.S. has become a bit more friendly to Venezuela and Iran. These are key suppliers of oil. The UAE has just recently announced as well that it plans to increase its production. So, you know, there are many factors at play here, but in any case, it's going to be a key factor driving markets in the coming weeks and months. And of
0: course, that uncertainty will always drive volatility. Alex, as Seamus mentioned there, the region closest to the firing line, as it were, is Europe. We know that Europe is over-dependent on Russian gas and oil. It seems likely this surge in energy prices will hit Europe particularly
2: hard. One hundred percent. Europe is by far the region which is most dependent on Russian oil and gas. You can see this very simply in obvious real life examples how controversial and how long it's taken Germany to make a decision on the Nord Stream two pipeline, for instance. A lot of discussion centers around countries like Germany, where anywhere from thirty to forty percent of gas supply comes from Russia. It seems almost impossible to see how this can be replaced, at least in the near term. Long term we'd hope to see green energy investment would take over the line share. Probably Europe should have considered as much higher priority years ago when Russia invaded Crimea. However, perhaps even more worryingly politically are the Baltic states. They are almost entirely dependent on Russian gas. This is a huge issue. It gives Russia a massive bargaining chip. These countries could literally be held for ransom. The rises in prices of the magnitude we've seen so far have a real effect on growth. We're looking at somewhere in the ballpark for France and Germany of a 1% hit for growth. and Italy, for instance, 2% less. That would still leave us in positive territory for now, for the year, but it already seriously threatens the recovery and could easily be worse.
0: And how... How serious then is the risk of stagflation in Europe?
2: There is undoubtedly a significant risk of stagflation. So, as a simple reminder, stagflation is the dreaded combination of slow economic growth, high unemployment, and rising prices. If we look at each of those in turn in the current environment in Europe, we had good growth because of the recovery from COVID. However, as discussed, rising price risk is significant, and the impact to trade, although milder, could both have a significant effect in slowing the growth. High unemployment relative to much of the rest of the world is already at play and seems almost a structural problem in Europe. Although at the moment there isn't a high probability scenario where unemployment would significantly rise, but if they hit to growth tips in a recession for instance, the highest unemployment number is sure to follow. And on inflation, we already have it and it's difficult to see how it doesn't get worse from here. Importantly, it can begin to filter through into significantly higher wage growth, which has a self-fulfilling negative effect in this environment. The reason this is such a dreaded combo is it puts governments and certain banks in the impossible position of trying to support growth, which in inherently has the byproduct of further pressuring prices.
0: It is a very difficult position indeed. And how has this increased risk of stagflation then been reflected in our tactical asset allocation?
2: So directly, we've reduced equity overall to moderate underweight within portfolios, and this has been driven almost entirely by the moderate underweight in European equities. So whilst Europe have corrected sharply in recent weeks, the threat of higher energy prices for a more sustained period of time is not fully priced in, in our view. We expect other regions to be less impacted by these issues.
0: Yes, Seamus, and conversely, we have seen a positive performance year to date from some of the emerging equity markets, namely Brazil, Indonesia, the Philippines. What is our view on the emerging markets currently?
1: Yeah, so emerging markets is an area that we've been focusing on quite a lot recently. It's significantly underperformed last year, and the valuation gap versus developed markets is as attractive as it's been for a long time. But the main reason emerging markets has been underperforming is China, which is the largest of the emerging markets. And while some of the issues here have improved, or they're of less concern than they were, there still remain some issues. So the zero COVID policy has the potential to weigh on economic growth if there's further lockdowns and restrictions in the country. And also China is a big importer of oil and other commodities. So obviously high prices here could hurt them. So these are kind of concerns for us. But on the other side, there is other parts of emerging markets that look interesting. Certainly the commodity producing nations, particularly those in Latin America. These obviously should do quite well in the current environment. But you have areas like Russia, that is a market that was in the index. It's become uninvestable. So it is in the process of being removed from the indices. So at least they will become investable once again. But it's an area that's interesting, but not overly interesting just yet.
0: So which then would be our preferred region in terms of equity investment?
1: Probably right now, US equities. It's traditionally a more defensive safe haven market. But also in this instance, it would not be impacted to the same degree as Europe by the sanctions and the energy crisis that's going on. So whilst it still imports a lot of oil, it now actually produces more oil than it consumes. So it's in a better position to protect itself if there are real supply issues down the line. Also, the market is dominated by large global tech and growth firms, and these are less impacted by the issues in the Ukraine as well. So for that reason, we think the US is more interesting at the moment. Yes,
0: that makes sense. Inflation, though, as we mentioned before, it's clearly being driven higher as commodity prices rise. There is a chance that inflation expectations become unanchored, that is, they move way ahead of recent forecasts. Alex, what risk does this bring with it?
2: So an immediate significant risk in expectations, if we look at what the market reaction has been, in the US, the one-year expectations for inflation moved to 5.2% from 3.5 a month ago, which is massive. Clearly, the risk is that inflation rises, which at this point seems unavoidable. We've already had an extension of higher inflation expectations as the whole fallacy of transitory fell apart. The key risk with inflation is that it ushers in stagflation, as mentioned, or it becomes self-fulfilling. The self-fulfilling is that spiraling, increasing prices, which are then combated by higher prices. So, So, So to use a straightforward example, imagine a production company having to increase wages to meet the demand of the employee market. This in turn could force the company to increase the price of the product it sells, which in turn means consumers have to pay more. Personal budgets become stretched and then they demand as an industry higher wages. This is that very real prospect that we face. Now, we're not saying that people don't deserve to be paid a fair wage, but this is the real potential economic balancing act we now find ourselves in.
0: Yes. And remind us, please, Seamus, which asset classes can offer some protection against a jump in inflation?
2: There are a
1: number of asset classes that can provide or offer some protection against inflation. Gold is an obvious one. This also benefits right now from a strong US dollar. We expect the dollar to remain strong in these uncertain times. You've also got real assets such as commodities. These tend to be very good inflation hedges over time. And also, you know, in terms of our portfolio construction, we are still quite style neutral, but we expect some quality and defensive growth companies to do well in this environment as well. And you know, typically equities over longer term are a better hedge against inflation as well.
0: And finally for you then, Seamus, it's a delicate situation for central banks to deal with. And just when their planned policy actions seem to be fairly clear for this year, we have the March meeting of the US Fed next week. Do you expect the dot plot? of expected interest rate hikes will change.
1: In short, no. So obviously this is getting a lot of debate in the markets, but actually we have not changed our views on fixed income in the last few weeks since this crisis has began. We anticipate that the Fed will remain focused on its issues at home, which are primarily that of high inflation and low unemployment. So, you know, on the inflation side, the last CPI print came in above 8% in the US. This is well above the target, which is 2. On the labor market side, we're very close to full employment, so the, the labor market is very very tight. These are two key issues the Fed's got to deal with. And so we think it's going to remain focused on those and less so on what's going on abroad. And so for that reason, we think that the Fed's going to continue on its path of tightening and beginning that by raising interest rates in March.
0: And then the pattern of rate heights over the remainder of this year then?
1: Yeah, we think the Fed's going to probably raise rates at all its meetings. So given the rampant inflation, we think the Fed fund rate needs to actually go higher than it probably is currently anticipated by the market. So here we're talking about the terminal rate, the rate that they'll ultimately get to in a year or two years time. So we think it needs to be higher than the current market forecasts. And so for that reason, we remain quite bearish on bonds, probably less so actually when it comes to Europe, there's likely to be lower growth prospects in Europe, given what's going on in the Ukraine, the oil price impact. So we sense the ECB are probably going to be less hawkish than they have been before. But Nonetheless, we don't see a lot of upside for bonds there either, despite their safe haven status. And we tend to put our money elsewhere now in cash or other alternatives, which we think are better ways to diversify our portfolios.
0: Yes, and that was my final question to you, Alex. The ECB, the European Central Bank, only recently allowed even the possibility of normalising interest rates this year. Does that seem likely to you now?
2: Given the more direct prospect of lower growth within the Eurozone, we would expect the ECB to relax their hawkish tone, that is their language around raising interest rates. Versus the US, however, the ECB never had extremely high expectations of raising interest rates many multiple times, but it may now have to continue to wait, being forced into not making any decision, or even, alongside governments, launch into even more accommodative, supportive measures. Thank you
0: both
1: very much indeed.
2: Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.